Blog Talk Radio. Hi everyone, this is Camille from sunny California, and you're listening to the Coffee Chat with Camille show, which is the podcast series that interviews various guests about real-life topics for people who love to learn. Welcome to Coffee Chat with Camille. It's me, Camille. I have an extraordinary guest um, that's going to be on this show shortly. But first, I need to introduce him some. And it looks like he's already in the studio holding, okay? So let me get through this so he can get into the interview. I'm so excited. What's it like being a working class rock star with Funk Boy, a.k.a. Ivan Botley? Funkboy Ivan Botley is a bass player and a music director to the stars. He's performed with 50 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. He has appeared in 12 Broadway shows and has been inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. Woo! He can currently be seen on tour with Humble Pie. Funkboy's debut single, Crab Walk, is available on Color Red Music and features performances by Crispin Cho, I hope I'm saying that correctly, otherwise known as Uptown Horns, Moses Moe, Mother's Finest, Kenny Soul, Dag, James Dower, Sam Moore, and Doug Henricks in the Heights. His new memoir, and my famous yet memoir of, his, of a working class rock star, is also out now. Ivan has been a music director for Sam Moore, Sam and Dave, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, the Shirelles, the Crystals, the Tokens, and has performed with Sting, Elvis Costello, sorry, I was about to say Castillo, Costello, the Temptations, Solomon Burke, Vinnie King, Percy Sledge, Eddie Floyd, Rufus and Carla Thomas, Bo Diddley, Buster Poindexter, Uptown Horn, Paul Rogers, Winona Judd, and David Awesome Foster. Notable appearances include Carnegie Hall, Kennedy Center, Broadway shows such as Rock of Ages, Spider-Man, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, SpongeBob, Kinky Boots, Ain't Too Proud, Once on This Island, Fun Home, and The Prom. Performed at the Obama Inaugural, that's the President Obama Inaugural Ball, featured in the Barry Levinson documentary, Pollywood. On the and also on late night with Conan O'Brien, the late late show with Craig Ferguson, the Today Show, Emerald Live, Emmys in the Morning, Charlie Rose, Live with Regis and Kelly, New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, Istanbul and Israel State Symphony Orchestras. For more information for you, the audience and listener, you can go to www.funkboy.net Okay And also he's on Wixsite.com Funkboy And I think it's Funkboy NYC Okay So I am thrilled to have Ivan on And so let's uh, Let me get him in here right now Have him into the studio Where am I? I get all over the place sometimes I apologize Hi, Ivan. 
Hi, Camille. Can you I hear can. me? I can. Yeah, hi. Welcome. 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 Hi. hi. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you. You're just amazing. Um, I would love to go ahead and start getting into our interview so that our listeners can get to know you even better. Um, the sure, first question is, why do you consider... Yes, yes. Thank you. Why do you consider yourself a working class rock star? And what does that mean? Ah, okay. Well, uh, I consider myself working class because, you know, I lift my own amplifiers. I, I work for a living. I feel like sometimes I'm punching the clock when I'm playing some of these uh, wedding gigs <laughs> that I do. But we also do rock starry types of things, like some of the stuff that you just very kindly mentioned, like, you know, playing the inaugural ball for Obama and stuff like that. You know, we get to hang out with rock stars, and then uh, at the end of the night, we uh, load our own amps back into the car and, and head off to the next thing. So I very much work for a living, but occasionally I get to stand next to some very famous people. Yes, wonderful. And then, what inspired you to write a memoir? You know, I have a, uh, just out of years and years of being on the road, you just sort of collect these stories. What would happen was we would be taking sort of a dinner break between sound checking the show, and if something funny or untoward had happened that day, it would always put me in mind of something even weirder that had happened on a previous gig. So I would be sitting around you know, the dinner table telling the band members, well, I remember this one time and tell them some funny story about a past experience. And after years of doing this, people said, you know, you should actually write these things down because you've got so many of them and they're so, you know, mm-hmm. funny and or sad and or weird. And uh, so I started to do that. You know, I started to sit down and compile uh, stories that I remembered of, of, of odd or funny or strange things that happened on the road. Uh, and I got it mostly, mostly finished uh, until, um, let's say, what was it, March 2020? I don't know if you remember, but the entire world shut down. So suddenly I had a lot of time on my hands, and all the gigs stopped. So I was able to really finish the book and get it copy edited and get it formatted and get it out on Amazon and all the things that I did, you know, that, that probably took a little extra time, which I wouldn't have ordinarily had in my daily working life. So it's a sort of a combination of uh, road stories and then having the time suddenly available to actually finish it, which is what uh, inspired me to get it completed. Okay, magnificent. What's it like to work for a major record label versus being a musician? Ah, it's so interesting. There are two completely different sides of the same coin. You know, uh, what you're alluding to is when I first got out of college, my first job was working for Epic Records as a publicist for them. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I was working with a lot of really famous platinum rock stars, and I still have some gold records on my wall from, you know, Michael Jackson and Luther Vandross and Joan Jett and Living Color and people like that that I worked with. Uh, And I got into the music business thinking like, I like music. This will be great. You know, I get to work out with, uh, hang out with rock stars and everything else. And what I realized very shortly, you know, I was only at the label probably about three years, is that the music business 
has nothing to do with music. It's all about marketing. It's a marketing company. They could be selling soap. They could be selling shoes. They really don't care. And I had one vice president of product management tell me, he said to me, blankly, like, I don't know anything about music, but I know about marketing. And, you know, this guy made people like Gloria Stefan a star, a major star. So very good at his job. But again, nothing really creative involved in our uh, aspect of the business. So I had already been playing since I was a senior in high school, been playing bass and be professionally and just sort of as a, as a hobby. And I decided that, you know, if I wanted to sort of be creative with my musical pursuits, what I really needed to do was go back to music school as a later student in life. I went to music school when I was 26 years old and decided, like, if I was going to give it a shot, I was going to really have to get myself educated and, and give myself the tools to possibly be able to succeed in a business where there's zero guarantees of success. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, I knew I was taking a tremendous leap of faith, but I wanted to sort of see if I could access that creative part of my brain and see if I could turn that into a vocation. And through a lot of hard work and a lot of luck, like, let's face it, everybody who's sort of making a living play music also has to have some luck on their side. You know, I certainly worked hard, but I was also lucky. So, like, in retrospect, I can say that, yeah, I've been doing this for 30 years professionally, and I feel very fortunate to have been able to do so for so long. Yes, excellent. Then what is fame, and why would anyone aspire to gain it? That's, uh, you know... (laughs) That's the question. That's really the, the $64,000 question that I, that I try to address in the book. What is fame? You know, and sort of, sort of from my early days, you know, standing next to platinum level rock stars, and I have a lot of like souvenir photographs from that era of my life, you know, I came to realize that, you know, somebody like, uh, I'm trying to use a contemporary, I used, to, I used to say this, I used to use the example of Janet Jackson because, you know, she'd sold like 10 million records of her, one of her albums, you know, but somebody, we could use somebody more uh, contemporary like Justin Bieber, for instance. So like if yeah. Justin Bieber has uh, 10 million downloads of a song, let's say, you know, that means the United States alone that there are probably upwards of 300 million people who don't know who he is and don't care. You know, so fame is a sort of tenuous kind of thing. It's a very relative thing. Like you can be sort of uber famous and still like, you know, my parents or grandparents might still not know who that person is through Justin Bieber. So there's that sort of aspect to consider. And then there's sort of levels of it too, you know, like, you know, uh, when I was a college radio disc jockey in New Orleans, you know, I was quote unquote you know, a very, very minor D-list local celebrity among people who listened to that particular radio station. They knew who I was. But again, the whole rest of the city had no idea who I was. It didn't care. And it, it was sort of fine. So that, that was sort of like figuring out what fame was. And then why would you want to attain it? I don't know. Like, it seems like, you know, early on when you, you know, when I very first played in a high school gymnasium at a talent show, and there are 600 kids screaming in approval and acceptance of what I'm doing. And these are kids that, you know, actively wanted to beat me up otherwise. 
you know, it seemed like a, a vast improvement in my lot in life by having this limited acceptance from these kids. So I said, all right, if I'm going to do that, you know, that's something that I should probably pursue in life to sort of create this feeling of acceptance among people. Uh, you know, and, and true self-adjustment obviously comes from within, but, you know, it sort of, it can feel very um, enjoyable or placating having a room full of people cheering and accepting what you're doing. And that, that, that feels good. So, you know, what, wanting to repeat that uh, feels like a very sane thing to want to do. Like, yep, that, that went well. People enjoyed it. Let, let's do that some more, you know. So that's fame on sort of a local level, you know, trying to play in a nightclub, for instance. And then, again, that can kind of increase over time, over situations, depending on what level you reach. Um, but I also, you have to sort of wonder if you're not trying to fill some sort of hole in your life by creating that false sense of acceptance. So, you know, you have to do some, some self-examination to, to understand why you're looking for that and whether it's a healthy thing for you or not. And it varies from person to person, I'll say that. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. And how does one go about being a professional musician? <laughs> That's the other $64,000 question. Uh, for me personally, uh, as I alluded to previously, it, it involved me trying to get myself educated. Because once I decided that the music business was no longer for me and I really wanted to try music itself, I realized that I needed to give myself every possible tool to be able to try to succeed at it. And I knew that, you know, the, my, I really had almost zero formal musical education through high school and college. It just wasn't really available to me other than studying some private lessons kind of thing. So, you know, I didn't know how to read music, for instance. I didn't know any of the musical theory or the harmony or any of these things. So I, I decided I needed to really give myself those tools to be able to exist in many different genres, many different worlds. Like, you know, being able to play uh, cover songs at a wedding, for instance, just means you have to just know a ton of material and be able to read charts. Being able to substitute in a Broadway pit, which I've done many, many times, you know, you have to have some sight reading ability. You know, it, it allows you to sort of shape shift, if you will, and go into different rooms, different genres, different bands, and be able to instantly sort of fit in. And having that mm -hmm. level of diversity allows you to have uh, more employment opportunities. That's the key, sort of being able to work in many different areas, many different fields, that's the, the secret, I think, is to sort of have yourself, you know, have a wide variety of things that you're able to do with success. Then you'd be able to, you know, get called back for things, and then you start to, you know, slowly by step by step build a career doing it. That's what I think is the secret. Excellent. And then is music school necessary to be a pro musician? I don't think so, you know, and, and I'm saying this with, you know, I have a degree from the Berkeley College of Music, which is a tremendously prestigious, you know, um, conservatory mm -hmm. for jazz and pop, you know, and, I, and I'm very happy and proud that I went there. 
But however, you can absolutely do this with private lessons. You can do this as an autodidact teaching yourself. You know, there are many, many paths. Well, I'll say this, you know, having this music degree in my hand, in 30 years, not one employer has ever asked to see it. You know um, what I'm saying? Like, and, and the graduation rate from Berkeley College of Music, when I was there, I'm sure these stats have probably changed by now, but back when I was there, the graduation rate was about one-third, which meant two-thirds um, of the people would go for a year, two years, and then they would get jobs and they would leave because having the piece of paper, the certificate, meant nothing in the real world. So, yes, it means something because I, I got a tremendously great education there. But in mm -hmm. terms of having a diploma I could wave in somebody's face, eh, doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. Then um, what is it like to sub on a Broadway show? <laughs> it is <laughs> nervous. It is nervous because what happens on Broadway, and this has been uh, a musical experience unlike any other I've ever had, is what happens is there is a chair holder. In other words, there's a bass player who's been hired to play the entire run of a production. And because of the local 802 Musicians Union uh, rules, you can substitute out up to 50% of your shows, up to half of your shows, and still keep your chair. So because, you know, the long-running show is running eight shows a week, you know, and running for years, you know, to, to not lose all of your other contacts and, you know, gigs and whatnot, you can sub out and go do other shows and come back. So as a substitute player, which is what I've been for, I guess, 13 or 14 different shows now, you know, what you do is they give you the, the sheet music. And they give you a recording, either an audio recording or sometimes a, a video recording of the conductor. And they say, call us when you're ready. So your job then is to go home and to begin to decipher the music, try to get it under your hands, sight read it, and almost get it over-prepared and memorized to the point where, you know, when you finally do get into the show, there are, are going to be distractions, there are going to be things that are different, and you've got to, like, just keep your feet under you the whole time. But what happens is you go in to do a live performance in front of a paying audience. That's your audition. You know, there's no, there's no sound check. There's no warm up. There's no, you know, you know, you're, you're, you're playing a show for paying people and you basically, you get one shot at it. At the end of that first performance, if the conductor says, yes, you're welcome to come back or no, we don't think that you've prepared adequately. We shan't work together again. So you've done like two to four weeks of, you know, rigorous rehearsal practice at home, like, you know, three to four hours a day for up to a month sometimes trying to get a book prepared. And then you go into the, do your first substitute show and it's just absolute panic because you know that you're going to get one shot at this. And if it doesn't work for whatever reason, however prepared you are, if something goes crazy upstairs and the actor forgets the line and the conductor does this, that, the other thing, or something sound-wise sounds different in the pit because somebody tripped over a microphone or whatever it is, you know, you, you know, if you panic and you sort of lose your spot or, you know, uh, uh, make a mistake that they don't like, that could be it, you know what I mean? So 
Yes. Knowing that you have one shot to get it right, it's extremely nerve-wracking the very first time you go in. Yes, yes. And what what is the strangest gig you've ever done? <laughs> so many, so many. And that's kind of what the book is about, too. There's so many. But one, one of them I do cite in the book was we played a wedding gig, a private party gig. And it was in a, a beautiful setting. It was this gothic decommissioned synagogue in New York City. It was built in the 1880s, and it had all this dramatic lighting in it, this giant. They constructed a, a moat, like a platform that literally had a moat, a water uh, a channel around it uh, with, a, with a table on it, with a bride and groom's table on this moat, and there were trees. And they brought in trees, and, and just it was one of the most elaborate sort of setups I've ever seen for a wedding gig. Um, <laughs> and then the punchline was there were no guests. It was only the couple in this room. And we were sitting in the corner of like this little acoustic trio, just absolutely freaked out. Like, what is happening? Why are we here? Why are they? It's like a hundred thousand dollar wedding for no people, you know. Yeah. And we would not have been uh, surprised to read in the paper the next morning that the groom had then eaten the bride for dinner. I don't know. We called it the Hannibal Lecter wedding. That's what we called it, just as a joke among <laughs> ourselves. It was so odd. Okay, thank you so much. And um, who are your sure. biggest musical influences? There's so many, so many, and it depends on the genre, and it depends on what gigs we're talking about. Uh, I spent a lot of my career working for classic soul artists on the Stacks and the Motown labels. You know, so Sam Moore from Sam and Dave, for instance. So Duck Dunn was the bass player at the Stax Records. And Duck Dunn played bass with Sam and Dave and Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett and Rufus Thomas. So his work is, is one of the foundations of my study and things that I've, you know, I've made a lot of money uh, uh, basically, you know, ripping off Duck Dunn, <laughs> playing all his parts. And, and by the same token, the, the, the artists that I work with from Motown, like the Supremes, Mary Wilson the Supremes, and the Temptations, and Harvey Fuqua, um, th- those lines, those bass lines were all played by a guy named James Jamerson, who played on all of the Motown records, all of the Marvin Gaye, all of Stevie Wonder, all of the Temptations, Four Tops. This one gentleman was, you know, one of the most influential bass players of, of the last century. And I've just spent hours and hours and hours, you know, transcribing his parts and, and you know, it, you know, becoming intimately familiar with his style and his approach. So, you know, I owe him a huge debt of gratitude and, uh, you know, also studying some great jazz bass players like Stanley Clark and uh, Jacob Pastorius, people like that have all been very influential in my career along the way. Okay. Thank you. Is touring life all glamour all the time? <laughs> it's almost no glamour none of the time, <laughs> to be oh, honest wow. with you. Uh, yeah. at, at the moment, I'm standing in a, in a hotel room in, in, uh, in Texas, and I'm looking out, and it's about 100 degrees out there. It's just like you can't even walk outside right now. Um, it's, 
It depends. You know, it depends on the tour. It depends on the music that you're playing. It depends on the people that you're working with. Uh, it depends on the audiences. You know, some, some tours are much more glamorous than others. Uh, we're going to be doing a tour up the East Coast of the United States with Humble Pie Legacy this September. And I, I think that's going to be just a great one. Just going to be wonderful people, wonderful audiences, fabulous music. The Humble Pie is one of my favorite all-time classic rock bands. Um, you know, and then there are other times where you're just like, you know, playing a wedding in um, in Idaho and you're just looking out the hotel room and you're going like, how did I get here? What? Why am I here? Uh, when can I go home? <laughs> How much am I getting paid for this? <laughs> Is it worth it? You know, it's up and down. Let's put it that way. Up and down. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I have um, just one more question, and that is, uh, what is your favorite coffee or hot beverage? <laughs> I am a tea drinker because it's more civilized. This is my uh, standard running joke, I always say. And, and it, you know, it comes, I think part of the reason is because it, I lived in England for about a year and a half, sort of after I dropped out of the record business and was searching for a way in life. You know, I had an opportunity to go live in England and just play bass for a while. So that turned me on to being a real tea drinker and there's a brand called PG Tips is a, a British brand that I, I carry with me. I have it with me today on the road. Um, I, I, I certainly do enjoy coffee, but I haven't had it in a long, long time. Tea drinker, more civilized. <laughs> okay. I thank you so much for letting us know that. And also for your um, amazing interview and for having the time, because I know you're very busy. Thank you for coming to my show and gracing my listeners with um, your experience and your knowledge. Um, also, I'd just like to know if you could uh, please let our audience know where they can uh, contact you through your social social media handles. Absolutely. Well, I, first off, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's wonderful to talk to you, and thank you for exposing me to all of your listeners. I really appreciate the opportunity. You're uh, welcome. All of my links are all of my links are at funkboy.net. F-U-N-K-B-O-Y.net. <clears throat> There's a link there that gives you all the socials, gives you everything. I've got you know, I can be found on just about any platform you can imagine. You can follow me if you're if you're so inclined or interested, and I'd love to talk to anybody out there. Okay, excellent. So this is, um, again, Mr. Ivan Botley, a.k.a. Funk Boy, bass player, music director to the stars. Thank you so much. Have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You too. Take care now. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, everyone. That was the magnificent legendary himself <laughs> he's like a walking living legend um i just i'm just blown away that i had this opportunity to share him with you all with um all of you in all the different countries that take the time to listen to my um very organic uh organically growing podcast um but uh, a funk boy, or Mr. Ivan Botley, is just the embodiment of music, of um, genius, in my humble opinion, um, 
honesty, humility. And so also, please be sure to pick up his memoir, Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star. It's called Am I Famous Yet? And also check out his podcast, okay? Um, I am just pleased because I rarely get to talk to anyone in the music business, especially when with um, uh, such a long history with all of these legendary folks. Um, And they're also um, amazing professionals, okay? So um, musicians, entertainers, they bring so much joy to our lives. And so we want to um, thank them, um, not solely for all the same of it, but also look at them as people who work very hard and um, who also bring us pure entertainment, right? And uh, inspiration. Okay, so this was a magnificent interview. I really enjoyed it. I hope that I have brought you something that you can enjoy as well. I have about 60 seconds left to to keep talking, so I'm going to wrap this on up. But, again, the episode is What's It Like Being a Working Class Rock Star with Bunk Boy, a.k.a. Ivan Bodley. You can find all these episodes on coffeechatwithcamille.com. Thank you so much again, Ivan. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you have a magnificent weekend. Bye for now.